look, he just hired um, NBC Universal's top ad executive to be the new CEO of Twitter. And I think that he just misunderstands what advertisers want. It's not a relationship problem. They're not, they're not, the advertisers haven't left Twitter because no one has returned their calls. Yeah. They've left Twitter because of stuff like the cat in the blender. <laughs> and they've left Twitter as a result of Elon's own personal tweets, right? So it's not just a matter of having an executive, as sound as Linda Yaccarino coming in to like wine and dine, you know, General Motors to return to Twitter. That's not it at all. General Motors and no brand advertiser wants its ad to appear next to the cat in the blender. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. This week's guest is Adam Kavakovich. Adam is the founder and CEO of Chamber of Progress, and he is an expert in tech policy. So I learned a lot talking to Adam about tech-related issues that have spilled over into the political news cycle in recent months. Uh, such as possible congressional regulation of artificial intelligence and TikTok, what Elon Musk gets wrong about content moderation, and we even wrap up by talking a bit about why Adam is such a big fan of self-driving vehicles, which have become more commonplace, especially in Phoenix, as he describes, but also in San Francisco. Uh, Adam posted a, a fun Twitter thread last week when he was in San Francisco for a conference about what taking self-driving vehicles around the city there is like. Uh, next week, I will be joined by the first two-time guest of the podcast, Ron Filipowski. So we will be talking a lot of political news, uh, the usual stuff that Ron and I are both immersed in, in terms of right-wing media, what's going on with the Trump campaign, DeSantis, and a whole lot more. So look for that next week. Uh, that episode, like this one, and like all of the episodes these days of the Aaron Rupar Show, will drop on Thursday morning. So please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Um, and also be aware that uh, if you're not already watching this on YouTube, that the footage of all of these interviews is posted on YouTube. So if you haven't already, it really helps the show if you head on over to my YouTube page and subscribe. And wherever you consume this, uh, please leave positive reviews and share the show with your circle of people um, because I'm trying to spread the word and it really helps just to get that kind of grassroots earned media, so to speak. So uh, without further, without further ado, let's get to my interview with Adam. Hello and welcome to the Aaron Rupar show. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Adam Kavakovich, who is the founder and CEO of chamber of progress. Adam is an expert on tech policy. And so I turn often to his Twitter account to get some clarity on the big tech-related issues of the day. And obviously, there have been a number of them uh, that have come before legislators, this Congress between TikTok, AI, and a whole lot more. So uh, thrilled to have you on the show today, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, yesterday, you were tweeting up a storm about the Senate hearing on AI. So maybe that's a good place to start. Um, I didn't see any big time takeaways from that hearing um, beyond kind of the posturing that you get whenever these hearings happen uh, that get a lot of attention. You know, Fox News dipped into it for a bit, as did MSNBC and other networks. So there are a lot of eyeballs watching this. But um, is there anything from that hearing that you think listeners should be aware of in terms of the state of play with possible congressional regulation of AI and you know beyond that, what are some aspects of AI that you think uh, members of Congress should be cognizant of in terms of considering possible legislation? Yeah, I think one of the things you saw yesterday was something you see a lot of these tech hearings, which is senators who have kind of a pet angle 
come in and bring in their pet angle, right? So Marsha Blackburn's from Tennessee. She represents a lot of um, Nashville in the songwriting industry. Her question was about um, AI, uh, use of AI in creating new music, right? So there was about two months ago, there was a story where somebody had gone in and said, well, create a song in the style of a Drake in the weekend, right? Is that a copyright problem? I'd argue that it's not. Um, should AI crawling be uh, allowed under fair use doctrine? I think there's a there's going to be a healthy debate about that. I believe that it is. But then you also saw people like Josh Hawley, you know, express concern about anti-conservative bias in AI. And that's something he's brought up with respect to search engines, too. So to some extent, it's senators kind of returning to their priors. But I think one of the interesting exchanges really had to do with, like, what's the right way to regulate AI? And you heard this idea of, well, maybe we need a new agency and maybe we need to license AI, you know, like we do like license spectrum. And I think that my concern about that is that when you say that, it's frankly, I think it's a little bit lazy because you're saying like this problem is so big, like we can't possibly Congress like expect to sort through all of the issues surrounding it. So we'll just kick that complexity to an agency. Well, we don't do that with respect to, you know, health um, care or transportation regulation. Like Congress actually grapples with some of the issues. Of course, you have an executive branch agency, but, you know, you still debate the thorny issues. And so I would have liked to see more debating of the thorny issues, although I expect we'll, we'll get into that in the months and years ahead. But there was a lot of, oh, let's just you know, create a new agency and that will solve all the problems. No, this idea of licensing companies to operate in AI, I think the problem with that is that anytime you do that, you basically inevitably slow progress in that industry. We've seen that in autonomous vehicles. We've seen that in delivery drones where you have a government agency that needs to grant permission. It has slowed things down. And frankly, it also tends to benefit the incumbents like a Google or an Amazon who can you know, get in there and get approval quickly. Uh, and that that can sometimes hurt challenger companies like an open AI. So I think that um, you know I worry about things like that. Yeah. Is there a significant partisan polarization on AI? I mean, as you were just talking through what some of the senators were saying, um, it sounded kind of refreshingly normal where Blackburn, you know, Blackburn has concerns that pertain to her constituents in Tennessee and Howley, you know, say what you want about him has concerns that, you know, I guess those are more partisan because that's kind of, you know, um, it's it, those aren't Missouri specific by any means, but what did you notice in terms of that? I mean, are you know, is there a significant difference between how Republicans and Democrats are approaching this or is it more um, contextualized in terms of the states that these senators represent? Well, I think especially in the House, maybe a little bit less so in the Senate, you see um, a, a lot of, um, I would say, cultural project, you know, culture war projection onto tech policy, which is to mm -hmm. say that Republicans are often coming at tech policy issues from this conviction that platforms are censoring conservative views and are not allowing enough free speech. And Democrats are typically coming at tech policy debates from a conviction that platforms need to do more, that they have too much legal protection, um, and that they need to do a lot more to remove misinformation. And so you see that divide come up again and again. There was a little bit of that at the hearing yesterday. Frankly, probably not as much as I thought there was going to be, but but that's definitely present in, in almost all tech policy debates now. Yeah, you tweeted earlier this month that um, I'm going to quote you here. You said on most tech policy issues in 2023, there's almost no Venn diagram overlap between what Senate Dems want to do and what House Republicans want to do, end quote. And obviously why that's significant is because Dems control, you know, Democrats control the Senate, Republicans control the House. So you need to have some overlap to accomplish meaningful legislation. Um, is the polarization here 
as simple as kind of what you were touching upon, that Dems favor stronger regulations and Republicans prefer less. I mean, one thing along these lines that seemed like a bit of a confounding factor, and correct me if I'm uh, misremembering this, but I believe in yesterday's hearing, Lindsey Graham was one of the senators who's actually pushing for licensing and stronger regulations, which um, yeah. seems a bit counterintuitive when you think of you know, kind of the core Republican principles of less regulation, limited government, that sort of thing. So uh, when you when you talk about this Venn diagram, what, what do you think accounts for that lack of overlap? And, um, you know, you, you say almost no overlap. You know, is there some limited area where there could be uh, consensus to pass some form of legislation? Well, I think there's a broad agreement when you ask politicians, like, do you think tech needs to be regulated more, right? That's essentially, I think that question is essentially a proxy for like, do you think tech as an industry has a lot of power? And I, I agree, tech industry, as an industry does have a lot of power. And I say some, this is somebody who, you know, has worked in it and represents it. But then I think once you get into the, into the specifics, you see a lot of disagreement. And I don't think it necessarily breaks down along like Republicans wanting less regulation, Democrats wanting more. It's, it's sometimes a little more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. On speech issues and social media, one of the things you see right now is that House Republicans like Jim Jordan are really fixated on this idea that the Biden administration has um, has forced platforms to censor content, what they call jawboning, whereas Democrats are more concerned about kind of misinformation. They have a new bill. Um, that would ban the use of AI and campaign ads after the RNC did that, you know, the, the video responding to Biden. Mm-hmm. But then there's other issues like privacy. The Senate Democrats want to typically are are more interested in focusing on kids, whereas the House Republicans are more focused on taking a comprehensive approach to consumer privacy. On issues like crypto regulation, you have the House Republicans interested in what I would call regulation that actually sets clear rules for the industry, because right now there really isn't much, which is a little unusual for Republicans. Democrats are pretty disinterested in that, right? Normally they're interested in regulation, but I think there are some from the Warren wing of the party who sort of say, well, I don't want to do anything that blesses or validates crypto and regulation of it does that. I'd rather see the whole Hmm. industry kind of go away. So that's Hmm. what I mean. I think like on issue by issue, the alliances are a little bit scrambled. Yeah, you mentioned the RNC uh, AI generated attack ad on Biden, which I thought, you know, was a pretty significant development, you know, when that was released about a month ago, I think it was. Um, What did you make of that? I mean, do you think we are, should people be prepared even this cycle in 2024 for AI generated? I mean, we already we already saw one, but to what extent might this become a thing that's normalized? Um, One of my specific concerns is I could imagine a situation where, one of these AI generated ads almost like fabricates a gaffe or a quote, you know, that um, is really dishonest in the sense that it portrays, you know, whether it be Biden or another politician as saying something or doing something that they did not do. Um, So I guess, is that an area that you think is in need of legislation to maybe curb some of that? And what should people be prepared for um, even as soon as, you know, the primaries this year and next year um, in terms of AI infiltration into political ads? Well, I don't think there are any odds of any bill limiting, um, pl- you know, pl- use of AI in political campaign ads. No, th- no bill like that would pass, right? Because mm-hmm. again, while that maybe the Democrats would like it, the Republicans would say hell no. So, and frankly, it probably wouldn't be constitutional anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I don't see that as the main frontier. The fact is, we've always had campaign ads taking liberties from the tr- with the truth, even pre AI, right? So, you don't need AI to 
have an, a political ad that's somewhat deceptive. Sure. What are the traditional checks against that? Well, for one, if you are a campaign advertiser and you submit an ad to a broadcast network or cable channel, you know, I used to work on campaigns, the network or cable channel demands factual um, substantiation for each of those points before they can run the ad. That's not a requirement under the law. That's the station's own requirement for protecting itself. And it's essentially its own sort of like standards and practices rule. Um, frankly, if you, but then you look, okay, a lot of these ads run online, right? So what rules do the Google advertising network or the Facebook advertising network or YouTube have for um, unsubstantiated claims, fake claims in advertisements? They all have rules to varying degrees, right? And so that's what I would look for. Like, what are the platform, what are the ad network's own rules about um, false claims, exaggerated claims, because that's typically the point where an ad might, a political ad might get removed for stretching the truth. Uh, I am excited about AI's potential. I'm not a doomer, but I also think there's a lot more that can be done, frankly. And this is just inevitable. We're going to have to find ways to make consume, help consumers become better educated about fakes and particularly AI fakes, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're just going to see more of that, right? And so I was at Google I.O., the conference in, in California last week. And one of the things that Google's um, going to be doing later this year is in Google Images – They'll be able to show you essentially the the birth date of an image, right? And so, if I go on and I create a new image today, um, you know that Google will be able to tell you if you're trying to figure out if that's real or not that the first time they saw that image on the web was today, and mm -hmm. that that's how you'll know that that image might you know might have been newly created today versus a historical photo that first showed up on the web you know 30, 40 years ago. And I think that's really interesting because I think that's, frankly, using technology and AI to also address potential consequences that might come up as a result of AI itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that seems like a good thing for journalists and for media literate people, like a good resource to have. But I, I do worry that with low information voters, you know, they might see a an AI generated ad on Twitter or on Facebook. You know, we've already seen. Uh, low information voters be manipulated on Facebook to affect, you know, the results of a presidential election in 2016. So I guess I, I do have some concerns about that because, you know, there might be some filter points like with networks, but um, people who consume news on the internet, on social media. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and that's where I think like platform content, content moderation comes into play, like Facebook, Google, like they, they all have policies and they have to decide, well, we don't want this kind of bottom feeding out on our service. The reality is that like fakes are always going to find a way, right? So they'll migrate to 4chan or parlor or like the dark web. And so they'll always find a way for people who want to see it. But, you know, mainstream platforms can make a decision that they don't want that kind of stuff on their platforms. Yeah. And speaking of content moderation, you recently tweeted that, uh, you know, pivoting a little bit here to Twitter, um, which is obviously relevant to what we've been talking about, but you tweeted that luring advertisers back to Twitter starts with more content moder moderation. Um, why do you think that is? And what does Elon Musk get wrong about this? Well, I think what he gets wrong about it is that he approaches Twitter as a kind of almost more like a disgruntled like parlor user, right? Which is like this 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 conviction that uh, content moderation, call it content moderation or censorship, um, is the biggest you know thing that bedevils us. What what we've seen, and we've done surveys on this, our organization, I've seen public surveys about this, which is when you ask people, um, would they prefer to spend time on a social network that is moderated? essentially where scams and hoaxes and hate are, you know, are removed or downranked, the vast majority of people 
even Republicans, by the way, say yes. Right. And so most people do not want to spend their time on a social network that has, um, you know, that's just garbage. Right. Yeah. And, and, and on I that think- note, I, I, did you see the story this week about <laughs> the NBC had a story about um, videos depicting violence against pets being yeah. kind of like upranked on Twitter, which their response to that on Twitter was not to kind of tweak the predictive text of searching because that's people were entering like cat into a search bar and the top result was cat in a blender or something like that. And it was directing yep. people to this viral video. Twitter responded to that by just removing the predictive text altogether. Like you can no longer, if you if you start to enter your name into the Twitter search bar, it won't pull up your profile necessarily. So that, that seemed like a rather heavy handed and kind of backwards way of doing that. But that's just one example that's been in the news of. Well, of I think this how, is what's yeah. so yeah, this is what's so maddening about those of us, you know, from those of us who've, who've both used Twitter, but also known a lot of people at, who work at Twitter over the years is that they really, the company has really taken what I believe to be a fairly nuanced approach to free expression, has absolutely biased in favor of allowing most speech up, but, you know, did, but but used a variety of tools, right? So they didn't always remove a post, maybe they might reduce its visibility in um in search results you know but, but of course you know musk calls that shadow banning and use it as evil but actually a lot of people like that or you know putting a label on something that's a different that's an alternative to removing it outright and so they would use like a, a, a spectrum of tools and of course elon just like sent all of that um expertise packing right mm-hmm. and so there's almost nobody at the company left who had a who has experience like, okay, how do we, what, what's the right tool for this job here? And so I don't, that doesn't surprise me, but look, he just hired um, NBC Universal's top ad executive to be the new CEO of Twitter. And I think that he just misunderstands what advertisers want. It's not a relationship problem. They're not, they're not, the advertisers haven't left Twitter because no one has returned their calls. Yeah. They've left Twitter because of stuff like the cat in the blender. <laughs> and they've left Twitter as a result of Elon's own personal tweets, right? So it's not just a matter of having a, a, an executive as talented as Linda Yaccarino coming in to like wine and dine, you know, General Motors to return to Twitter. That's not it at all. General Motors and no brand advertiser wants its ad to appear next to the cat in the blender, um, right. uh, you know, a, a tweet. And so I think what's kind of interesting to me about this is that, like, I see really two paths in social media. There's like the parlor path where you say, we're going to be maximalist free expression, say anything you want. But man, that's a crappy business because yeah. advertisers aren't going to be. Or you could be Instagram. Instagram is the most popular uh, well, Facebook is the most popular, but Instagram is very popular as well. One billion users. Why? Because it's a pleasant place to hang out. They yeah. do engage in a lot of content moderation. Advertisers love Instagram. It's very brand friendly. And so, you know, I, I would sort of think it'd be obvious if you're trying to build a bit better business, would you rather be parlor or you'd rather be Instagram? I'd rather be Instagram, but son of somewhat surprising to me. Um, Elon's chosen parlor. And I think it's only <laughs> it's only for the fact that like you know, we, there's a lot of us on Twitter. I, mean, I don't know how you feel maybe the same way that like, I'd go somewhere else if other people went somewhere else. Right. Oh, um, yeah, so it's more absolutely. of a, le- it's more of a legacy thing. It's not, it's not, it's not a reflection of, we don't like the direction it's gone, but let's all agree together to go somewhere else. Oh, absolutely. And I've been kind of struggling with that with blue sky, which I'm not sure Are you on blue sky yet. Yeah. I'm on blue sky. Yeah. Um, You know, it, and that similar to what you were saying about Instagram is a fun place to hang out. Um, You know, it kind of has the vibe of like a cool kid's lunch table because it's a lot of influencers and lefty journalists um, like me, but it's almost kind of cringe on there to earnestly promote your work or to post right. links. And so 
I log on a couple times a week just to see what people are snarking about and to, you know, maybe get a joke off myself, but I'm not using it at all for business. Right. And um, I just don't know how that scales. And right. Um, I mean, you built yeah. your you built a business around Twitter. Right. And right. and and it's a part because of the centrality it's played in conversation. And and, you know, there's I, I think there'll always be a market for that. And I think, you know, we're all kind of hungry for it to be something besides Twitter. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's also striking when you log into Blue Sky, how much of the conversation there is still about Twitter. You know, it's a yeah. lot of, of, of screen caps <laughs> of Elon's tweets and yeah. conversation about Elon. And so totally um, it feels kind of inescapable that, you know, Twitter, even if you're not on Twitter, it's you know, Twitter is kind of the main character. Elon That's is right. the main character. And, <laughs> um, you know, and all of the other ones, you know, I think, uh, you know, Mastodon is a little bit too technical, I think, to have scale. Uh, Post news feels a little bit too much like Facebook and also lacks scale. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I also think what's interesting is that Mastodon and, and I don't think the majority of users particularly care about whether the social media, the, the, the Twitter alternative is decentralized. But of course, Blue Sky and Mastodon are decentralized. That that um, is a part of the appeal of them for many, but I think it also makes them a little bit harder to use. Uh, but the biggest issue I see with all of them is that like which one reaches scale. That's where everybody, you know, where everybody will go to the thing that can kind of like reaches like almost that tipping point of scale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's pivot and talk a little bit about TikTok. Um, I know Chamber of Progress has been trying to raise awareness about the Chinese government's influence over the platform. Um, you know, there has been a lot of talk about legislation to ban TikTok. You know, I understand there's a lot of legal challenges surrounding that. Um, I sometimes get the sense that members of Congress kind of use the issue more to posture as tough on China than they do um, to really get into the weeds of what responsible legislation would look like in this area. Um, you know, do you think it is the case that TikTok poses a unique threat among the large social media platforms? And in an ideal world, what do you think Congress should do about that? It's such an it's such a novel challenge. We've never before had a service in this country that rises to the top of the charts and is Chinese owned. And I think that um, and and so I, I don't think like treating it like some other thing is just hard because we haven't ever had something like that. Um, you know, I spent a dozen years at Google and I remember, you know, Google used to be in China censoring its search results. And then there was an episode where the Chinese government essentially broke into the Chinese uh, offices and, and, and code and stole source code. And China and Google said, you know, we're not going to be in China anymore. We'll operate in Hong Kong, but we don't operate there. Facebook tried to get in China for years, never got in. And so I do think there's, um, you know, there's like a Chinese way of doing business and, I, and it's very different from our way of doing business. But the reality is China has a law, a, a national um, intelligence law that conscripts Chinese um, companies and Chinese citizens into advancing the government's aims, both through, you know, intelligence, but also propaganda. And there's been ample reporting about kind of how that's played out within ByteDance. I, I, I mean, look. Uh, for me, I, I, thinking about when Russia invaded Ukraine, and one of the things that we all sort of talked about was like, we have a, t a television network on our cable systems, RT, that is literally a Russian propaganda network. And why why did we let that happen in the first place? I'm not suggesting it had a great influence, but you know, essentially it, it was shut down on cable systems in, in and in Europe within days. Mm -hmm. I sort of feel the same way about TikTok that – you know, I'm more concerned about the propaganda concern rather than the um, rather than the the data security concern. Although I think mm -hmm. that's real as well. Um, you know, what maybe they haven't used it yet, but I think China, the Chinese government, does view it as a strategic asset. That's why they've resisted the divestiture demand. I personally think there's a 
pretty easy. The playbook here is is how the Trump administration dealt with Grinder in 2020 because Grinder, the app, came under Chinese ownership. The CFIUS process, the interagency process, said to the Chinese company owning Grinder, "Will not we will not allow you to continue owning Grinder." They were concerned about access to data. They were concerned about you know Grinder had a lot of sensitive data about sexual orientation, about HIV status. Arguably, TikTok has a lot of that as well. And they demanded that the Chinese owner divest and sell to U.S. company. It was all done pretty quietly. And a year later, um, Grindr announced that it had been sold to a U.S. owner. The fact that I think things have been pretty quiet lately between uh, TikTok and the and the federal government suggests to me that like silence might mean negotiation. It's very plausible mm-hmm. to me that actually the administration is, in fact, um, working with ByteDance to try to find a buyer for the app. I know that's something the Chinese government would resist, but I just don't see that China cloud ever going away for for, for TikTok so long as they're Chinese-owned. Yeah. Um, to broaden it out a little bit, I mean, you talked about um, the concerns surrounding TikTok as a propaganda tool. Um, I think there are some similar concerns with Twitter at this point. Um, you know, Even Elon Musk this morning before we hopped on this call was amplifying Sputnik. And, um, you know, he certainly has an affinity for uh, right wing propaganda more broadly. And so how concerned should people be about these social media companies? Um, I mean, I guess we've already have some experience in the U.S. with this in 2016. But how concerned should people be about these large social media platforms being used as tools for right wing propaganda? And do you see this as an issue where the solutions are going to be more market based? You know, we've already kind of touched upon this a little bit, but or is there a space where, you know, policy and legislation um, you know, could be helpful. It's really remarkable, isn't it? I, I, I just, I, I have been so amazed by the kind of, um, ma- you know, mainstreaming of Russia um, on the right. And, um, you know, I guess, I guess dating back to sort of Trump's own affinity for like strongmen, but mm-hmm. it is just such an amazing 180 for a party that has, you know, had, I think, a proud history of, of hawkishness and protection of American, you know, interests and national security interests. I remember years ago, um, there was a big hearing in Congress when Yahoo was called before Congress for, um, you know, before for essentially giving information to the Chinese government about a user, a Chinese dissident, right? And now that's the kind of behavior that like Twitter does, you know, routinely and 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 frankly, you know, Musk then gets defended largely by by House Republicans on this. So. I just, you know, yeah, I'm very concerned about it for sure. And I think it's a problem. Um, But, you know, I think and so we should like as information consumers, we should be hopefully aware of the fact that I think Musk is compromised on this stuff. Yeah, but it does sound like ultimately it's more of a it's more of a demand issue than a supply in terms of um, there isn't necessarily legislation that can fix this. It's you know, it's up to people to be cognizant of what they're consuming. that's scary for you know people are pretty low information and broadly speaking so that that's a little scary to rely on people to you know discern good information from bad but um you know to- well and, and by the way i'm not totally hope i'm not saying people are completely on their own because yeah. i do think like that's you know that that's sort of uh, you know just throwing people to particularly low information voters to like you're on your own and you you know you might get the wool pulled over your eyes i i am optimistic that tools will evolve and emerge that help keep all of us become better information consumers. And again, I think back to like original Google, original Google mission was to literally sort, you know, high quality websites, authoritative websites from low quality websites. Right. And so companies like that, like they, 
ideally will evolve to to as a tool for consumers struggle like millions of us are struggling to sort real from fake and you know i think there will be a market for that and like for trusted sources new york times is arguably the most successful news outlet from a business perspective in the country arguably i think part of that is like the authority and trust that they've built so i do think there is a realm for um for trusted you know entities to say this is real this is fake etc but are there always going to be pla- there are always going to be places where you know somebody who wants to find lies and hoaxes will find them that's just right. that's just absolutely true yeah yeah well, let's close this out on a little bit of a happier note. Um, I got a kick out of your tweets last week when you were in San Francisco about self-driving cars. Um, I personally have not uh, been inside of one of those. I would be a little bit, I think, nervous about it, at least at first. Um, tell me where the technology is at with that these days. And what was the experience like? I'm, I'm guessing that wasn't your first time in a self-driving car. But for, for those of us who have not been in one, um, what is that? what is that like? How safe is it? Well, there are places in this country right now, particularly um, Phoenix, Greater Phoenix, where you can, as a customer, uh, hail a self-driving car uh, from your phone and there's no driver, there's no safety driver at all and have that experience today. Arizona has probably been like the country's leading state and particularly the Phoenix metro area. Uh, Cruz and Waymo have been testing for years in San Francisco and essentially are right on the verge of full 24-hour commercial operations there. And it's a kick. I mean, I'll be honest, you get in there. And one of the things that I just was struck by is like how safe you feel, how cautious it feels. Almost to the point of like, you know, in San Francisco, I'm riding in a cruise last week. Uh, drivers, human drivers would drive around the car because they were actually feeling like the, the our vehicle was driving too cautiously. But of course, oh. I think that's probably the right call for right now. Yeah. Um, just fascinating things, you know. Uh, riding a Waymo in Arizona, we're pulling out the street, we're making a right turn into traffic, and the car had to gauge um, which you know which um, uh, window between cars it had to turn right, right, and so that's a distinction that we would normally guess as a human driver. Well, what you underestimate is that the computer is doing all of this um, computation in the background, literally to say, okay, well, well, that car is 35 yards away, and the next one is 50 yards away, and based on our rate of acceleration, we can get in, you know, we can get between these two, but not between those two, and that's just incredible. And so I just think that for me, actually, the experience went pretty quickly from this is amazing to like. Eh, this is ho hum. I'm going to get on my phone and see what's going on on Twitter right now. Right. And so I just think it's one of those things that like freaks some people out when you sort of talk about and think about it. But, but once you experience it, it's for me anyway, it's just incredibly cool. feels very safe and, and then starts to feel almost ordinary, which is kind of what you want from technology. Yeah. And I guess the bonus is that then you also don't have to worry about a driver talking to you. Um, Totally. If you're an introvert, <laughs> yeah. it's great. <laughs> it's all. It's I don't always, mind it sometimes, all... but there are times where you know I have work to do where I need to write an email or something, and you know I politely yeah. will, well, will and, ask. And and I would say too, on a serious note, you know I think there's a tremendous um, potential for this for helping, uh, you know, visually impaired people, seniors. You know, I mean, just like the, the, this is what's so exciting to see this unleashed finally uh, in cities, um, just to see the way people uh, people use it. So I'm really excited because I, I really think you'll see. You know, by by this fall, you'll see full um, commercial operations in San Francisco. And again, it's already there in, wow. in Arizona. 
Is there any prospect of this coming to the East Coast anytime soon? It seems like it's more of a West Coast thing at this point. You know, it's interesting. So a lot of the Southwest and Southern states were really on the on the leading edge for of passing pro autonomous vehicle laws. There's been less testing of the vehicles in states. Blue cities and states like New York and Boston have been have dragged their feet the most. Um, and so they'll unfortunately AVs might be the you know those might be some of the last cities. To to uh, I I think what you've seen again, particularly in Arizona, is that like Arizona like wants to attract jobs and innovation, so they really almost kind of sought it out. A lot of East Coast cities, I think, take the mentality like you know we're you know they've been here for hundreds of years, they're going to be here for hundreds of years more. <laughs> they don't need to attract you know go out of the way. I think that's a mistake, but um, but I think we're likely to see other cities kind of get the lead. Texas, you're, I think you'll see Houston, Dallas, Austin. Uh, all become big autonomous vehicle cities. And so I, th- I think on the East Coast, my prediction is that D.C. becomes one of the first AV um, cities. Um, and then in New York and, and Boston will will probably be further behind. Fascinating. Uh, what, what does that mean for uh, just just last thing here? As, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this. What does this mean for drivers, though? I mean, is, is there a constituency mm-hmm. of you know, Uber, Lyft drivers, DoorDash? Um, I, I, you know, I guess this yeah. is just kind of how mechanization affects the economy, the job market, but, uh, you know, I could see yeah. that being a concern in terms of, of actually having a bill legislation, an ordinance that allows for this, that there's a constituency that could, you know, see part of their livelihood going away here. It's a concern. And I don't yeah. want to dismiss the concern because, because definitely dri- some driving jobs will, will go away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think new jobs will be, will be created. Um, but the Teamsters, for example, this year have been very active in promoting bills in states that say autonomous drivers cannot operate without a human driver in the seat, which basically okay. means no autonomous vehicles. And I think that's primarily aimed at protecting jobs that exist. Um, and I again, I understand that. I think the reality is that we probably need much more of a government investment and program to help people um, who are drivers today become the autonomous vehicle, you know, technicians of tomorrow because everything breaks down. Everything's going to need a technician. I was at a Waymo depot in Arizona where, you know, there were um, many people uh, servicing the vehicles. And so like, there's going to be plenty of jobs of, of that kind as well. We've seen that kind of transition before. So I, I, I'm, I, it will, it won't be easy. And I, I don't want to be dismissive about it because I, I, I fully appreciate that, um, that many people make a living that way. I still think I think there will be driving jobs will not go away altogether, um, but but new job, new types of jobs will be created. Yeah. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, Adam, anything that you want to plug on the way out? If people want to follow you or your organization, where can they do that? Sure. I'm uh, at Adam Kovac on Twitter and uh, Chamber of Progress. We're at progresschamber.org on the web. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Really fun conversation. Thanks, Aaron. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar Show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in.